You know who you are? Even Steven. <laughs> the following podcast is going to contain spoilers along with unfettered feelings of nostalgia. Proceed at your own risk. folks kick the drain and make it rain it's time for event or else the podcast where i go through most every major marvel and dc event one issue at a time one episode at a time because well somebody once told me that it was the path to fortune and glory i'm your host my name is steven and i'm back once again to take you through this epic journey of splendiferous superhero charcuterie that most folks call crisis on infinite earths Hold on a second. Did did I just say charcuterie? Isn't that like a meat plate or something? One moment, please. All right, here it is. Charcuterie, a French term for a branch of cooking devoted to prepared meat products such as bacon, ham, sausage, et cetera, et cetera. So what in the flip does meat have to do with Crisis on Infinite Earths? I mean, who writes this crap? You know what? It's uh, probably best not to look deeply into these types of things. So let's just ignore all the stuff about meat and power forward, despite how good a big plate of meat sounds right about now. Am I right? Moving on. Today, we're looking at Crisis on Infinite Earths. And well, it's the penultimate chapter, isn't it, folks? Issue number 11, the one before the one that wraps this sucker all up. And I don't know about the rest of you, but I'm pretty dang excited. This issue sports a cover date of February 1986, but it actually hit the shelves on October 31st, 1985. It sold for just 75 cents, and it is entitled Aftershock. It was written by Marv Wolfman, penciled by George Perez, inks by Jerry Ordway, letters by John Costanza, and the colorist was Anthony Tallon. As our issue opens, actually, let me just read to you from page one, if I may. In the beginning, there were many, a multiversal infinitude, so cold and dark, for so very long that even the burning light was imperceptible. But then the light grew and the multiverse shuddered and the darkness screamed as much as in pain as in relief. For in that instant, a universe was born, a universe with mighty worlds orbiting burning suns, a universe reborn at the dawn of time. What had been many became one. So, in other words, it appears as if the multiverse has been eliminated and from it, a new universe has been born with just the one Earth. And on that Earth, in Metropolis at 344 Clinton Street in apartment 3D, Kal-El, the Superman of Earth 2, wakes from a horrible dream in which everything, all the Earths, the multiverse, everything has ended. He's a bit disoriented as he can't remember how he got home or where he actually is. Not only that, once he starts to get his bearings, 
he realizes that the apartment looks a bit different. The decor has all been changed. Chalking it all up to exhaustion and thinking that Lois may have already left for work, letting him sleep in, he dresses and heads out into the world to begin his day. He arrives at what he thinks is the Daily Star and makes straight for the editor's office, his office. But before he can so much as settle in, Perry White arrives to throw him out, claiming that Kal-El is in Perry's office. Now Kal-El is really confused. If that's Perry White, then he must be on Earth-1. But before he can figure out a way to explain just what it is he's doing in Perry's office, Clark Kent arrives, telling Perry that Kal-El is his Uncle Clark, the uncle he was named after. After a bit of fast talking, the two Clarks are soon on the roof of the Daily Planet. And changing into their respective Superman togs, they head out, flying to New York and the Warp Zone so that Earth-1 Superman can help Earth-2 Superman get back to his own Earth. There's a problem, however, because they arrive in New York to find the Warp Zone is gone. And when they ask a cop what happened to it, the cop has no idea what the two are talking about. The two then decide to visit the home of Barry Allen in Central City so that they can use his cosmic treadmill. There, they find that Earth 1's Central City and Earth 2's Keystone City now exist side by side, kind of like Kansas City, Kansas and Kansas City, Missouri. When they reach the home of Jay and Joan Garrick, Joan recognizes the Superman of Earth 1 but not the Superman of Earth 2, despite the fact that he is a fellow Justice Society member alongside her husband Jay, the Flash of Earth 2. And speak of the devil, Jay Garrick arrives and he recognizes both of the Supermen, shuffling them off to his lab where they find Wally West working on the cosmic treadmill. Jay tells them that the world still knows about the other Flash, Barry Allen, and remembers his trial but that everyone also maintains that he, the original Flash, has lived on this Earth all of his life. Wally then changes into his Kid Flash costume, and Jay assumes his Flash identity. Then, with the two Supermen, they board the cosmic treadmill and reach the correct speed and vibration rate to enter Earth 2's universe. However, instead of Earth 2 and the Earth 2 universe, all they find is is an endless sea of blackness, a void where a universe may once have been. Feeling lost without a past or a homeworld, the Superman of Earth 2 loses his freaking mind and jumps from the treadmill into the void. But the Superman of Earth 1 manages to grab hold of him, pulling him back onto the treadmill as the two flashes take them all back to the lab. Their arrival causes the treadmill to explode, and as he crouches among the treadmill's broken remains, Kid Flash suggests that they call everyone in for a meeting. Meanwhile, in the time stream, Rip Hunter's time sphere, carrying Rip, Dolphin, Captain Comet, Animal Man, Atomic Knight, and Adam Strange, emerges in space near Brainiac's big ol' skull spaceship. They board it and find the robotic villain slumped in his command chair. Of all these heroes... Only Rip remembers the multiple Earths. In the meantime, at Titans Tower in New York, the Teen Titans host an assembly of heroes who formerly occupied six different Earths. 
Captain Marvel and Uncle Sam report that they have each tried to return to their homeworlds, but found them non-existent. Slowly, they come to grips with the fact that only one Earth now exists. Suddenly, Harbinger appears. She has regained her powers with the rebirth of the universe and states that many realities have been changed. When Kal-El asks why he still exists in this new universe, while his Krypton never even existed, she tells him that he was spared because he stood before the rebirth. The Huntress, shaken by her experience, tells of how she found herself without a law practice, an office, an apartment, or even a recorded identity on this new Earth. Robin of Earth 2 says that the only Dick Grayson of whom he could find records was 19 years old and lived in Manhattan, not in Gotham City. Even the grave of the Earth 2 Batman was missing from the cemetery. Harbinger explains that a new universe, not a multiverse, was born from the battle against the Anti-Monitor. There is and was only one Earth, one history, even only one World War II, in which Uncle Sam led the Freedom Fighters to victory over the Axis powers. Krypton exploded and Kal-El came to Earth and only one Batman came to exist from the murder of his parents. All the heroes are stunned by this revelation and none more so than the Earth 2 Superman. Not only did his Krypton never exist, but now his wife, Lois Lane, is also gone forever. He soars off in frustration and anguish and the Superman of Earth 1 follows him. Elsewhere in a spirit dimension, Dead Man and the Phantom Stranger watch over the Spectre who was rendered immobile after his battle with the Anti-Monitor. In Las Vegas, a detective convention is interrupted when Angleman's body is found along with his angler weapon. In Salem, Dr. Fate and the Demon magically observe Amethyst being attacked as a witch by a mob. Dr. Occult stops them, but then shadow demons appear and attack. Dr. Fate and the Demon join in the battle. However, Amethyst has been blinded, and while Fate looks into her eyes, he finds something incredible and takes her back to Gemworld. Above New York City, Superman has succeeded in calming his elder counterpart, reminding him of his own loss with Kara's death. The Earth 2 Superman weeps, not knowing where he belongs. Back at Titan's Tower, Wonder Girl tells of how Queen Hippolyta reacted when the Earth 2 Wonder Woman and her daughter Fury appeared on Paradise Island. None of the Amazons remembered the multiverse, even though the new Paradise Island had elements from both Earths. Power Girl questions why she is even remembered, but her cousin forgotten. Harbinger replies that she does not know. Not yet. Batman then appears with the younger Robin and Alexander Luther and tells the assembly of their recent interview with Lex Luthor in prison. Luther had no knowledge of participating in the crisis and angrily denied that he would ever help superheroes. Therefore, says Alex, none of the villains remember fighting alongside them. However, the Earth is still in danger as shadow demons continue their assault and the uncanny weather persists. Meanwhile, far below the surface of Peru, 
Cave Carson's crew reports an awesome flux of energy and transmits the news to Titan's Tower. There, the heroes observe the electrical storms becoming worse, and Pariah feels his pre-teleportation symptoms again. But, with no place to teleport to, he remains in painful stasis. Alex glows with the antimatter effect, and the Earth is suddenly drawn into a titanic space warp. On a rooftop in New York, the two supermen realize that the Earth has been drawn into the antimatter universe. As the issue ends, they are confronted by a huge image of the anti-monitor welcoming them to his home and to their deaths. And so with the Earth and all her heroes teetering on the brink of destruction, here's where I would normally do the whole top three things to dwell on. But you know what? I'm not going to do that anymore. Instead, I'm going to go back through the issue page by page and just talk about whatever pops into my mind as I'm revisiting the story. This is pretty much the format you can expect from Event or Else going forward. Very similar or actually very exact to the uh, format I'm using in Just Another Fanboy Presents The Death of Superman. And by the way, the synopsis I just read comes from DCFandom.com, but was edited by yours truly. All right, so let's start with the cover of this issue. And I'll admit I'm not a big fan of this cover. It's separated into panels, quite like the interior of a comic book would be. And I don't know, I've never... Never been a big fan of that on comic book covers. Sometimes it works. I don't think it quite works here. It depicts at the top a panel of the two Supermen with Kid Flash and Jay Garrick Flash on the cosmic treadmill. And Earth 2 Superman is about to be sucked into the void and they're trying to, to pull him forward. Back onto the treadmill, we see Paradise Island and all the confused Amazons, as well as a very confused Wonder Woman of Earth 2. We have a, a panel with Harbinger's head floating in space with Brainiac's ship and Rip Hunter's time sphere floating behind her. We have a panel of people attacking Amethyst as a witch with Dr. Fate and the demon coming to her aid. And then a panel at the bottom with a collection of our heroes and the Robin and Huntress of Earth 2 square in the middle, looking at you and me, the reader, in shock and surprise. Now, it's a very well put together cover. Again, George Perez's art throughout this entire event has been top notch, 100%. It's not failed ever on any single panel to impress me and just the sheer number of characters that he puts on this cover is again, very amazing. And it, you know, depicts exactly what's going to happen in the book. I'm just not, I'm just not a big fan of it. It doesn't feel, you know, when I'm, when I'm looking at some of the other covers of this event, certain ones jump out at me as those classic crisis on infinite earths covers, such as the, the cover of Superman holding Supergirl and the cover to issue number one and the cover with all the villains. Those are great classic covers. This one, this one just seems very generic to me. All right. So we get the opening page where we see the 
new single universe being born with its one Earth. And we go from there. We got Kal-El of Earth One waking up in his apartment. I like that we get an actual address for Clark's apartment. I don't know that I've ever seen that before. And I don't know if it's still used today, but 344 Clinton Street, apartment 3D in Metropolis. And it does also tell us that it is a sunny morning in Metropolis in 1985. This is also the title page, page two here. And the title Aftershock is in one panel across the top of this page with a cityscape of, I'm assuming, Metropolis inside the letters. And I think it looks really nice. So I have to admit, I've said it before, that I've only read Crisis on Infinite Earths a couple of times. And the first half, I've probably read more than the entire series because of my previous attempts to do uh, Event or Else in the past. And I never got past the, the first half of Crisis on Infinite Earths. So issues like this one are really almost like reading something brand new. I don't remember any of this at all. So when Earth One, Clark Kent, goes into the offices of the Daily Planet and he sits down at the desk in the editor's office thinking that it's his office and then Perry White barges in with Great Caesar's ghost. Who in the blazes are you? I have to admit I was quite surprised. I assumed, maybe along with first-time readers, that we were in Earth One. I mean, we see the outside of the Daily Planet building, and we see the planet on top, and we can kind of make out the words Daily Planet across the ring that crosses around the freaking planet. But for some reason, that didn't at all clue me in that this was the Daily Planet. And now that I'm reading Golden Age Superman stories for the uh, Superman Super Show podcast, check it out at supermansupershow.com. I'm a bit more familiar with what will turn into Earth 2 and uh, Earth 2 Superman. And where I'm at right now, which is still very early on in Superman's Golden Age adventures, he is working at the Daily Star. Actually, now that I think about it, I think where I'm at, they just recently changed the name to the Daily Planet and they never gave any explanation. So the fact that it goes back to the Daily Star I guess in the Silver Age, when the whole multiverse thing became, well, a thing, I find that kind of interesting. And I also find it kind of interesting that the Superman that I'm reading now in the Golden Age will eventually become the editor of the Daily Star and marry Lois Lane. Now, I'm not sure if any of that happens during any of these Golden Age stories. I don't think it does. I think that's a product of the creation of the multiverse during the Silver Age, when they had the Justice League crossing over with the JSA of Earth 2, I think that comes from, from those stories. I also like how Earth 1 Clark shows up and introduces Earth 2 Clark as his uncle Clark, whom he was named after. And that's the first time I've, I've, I've ever heard that, you know, that Clark was named after an uncle whose name is Clark or at least a brother of Jonathan or a brother of Martha. I always, I feel like I always heard that Clark was Martha's maiden name, Martha Clark. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe y'all can help me out with that. But when the two supermen go to the roof of the Daily Planet and they're opening up their shirts 
to show their Superman emblems as they are changing into Superman. It's very obvious in these two panels how different their costumes actually are. And it's not something I really kind of picked up on in this event so far. I mean, Earth 2 Superman has these lines around the ends of the sleeves on the costume over his wrist, which to me looks like he's got these elastic cuffs on his sleeves, which then tells me that his costume is like maybe made out of cotton. Whereas Earth One Superman, his costume is made out of spandex, and that's why we don't see that. But the two S's on each of their chests are different. And Superman of Earth Two, his cape is actually a bit shorter than the Superman of Earth One. Earth Two Superman's cape only goes down to below his bottom, whereas Earth One Superman's cape goes down to uh, the bottom of his calves. Found that kind of interesting. I didn't I didn't realize that before. And of course, the Earth 2 Superman has a lot of gray in his hair, which is how they depicted older men in comics back then. You, you knew a man was older because the bottom half of his hair was white or just uh, uh, striping around his temples. So the two Supermen go to see Jay Garrick and Wally West is there. And there's a lot in this issue that for me, who is not reading any of the tie-in issues at this point, there's a lot that I am assuming are callbacks to what's happening in other books that are coming out around this time. Because Jay mentions how everyone on this earth remembers Barry Allen and they remember his trial. And he says it in such a way that they expect the readers of this book to know what that means. And The fact that there's not an editor's note to tell us when the trial happened or what issues, I find that kind of curious. But maybe in the original issues there were, and maybe they took out the editor's note for this digital collection they have online. But I really feel for the Superman of Earth 2 during this whole issue, and especially the sequence where they try to go back to Earth 2 and find that it's not there, because... The Superman of Earth 2 is quickly realizing that his home is gone. And I think his panic and his despair and his depression and his leap into the void, I think most of that is not, it's less about the fact that he is realizing that he is now without a home and more that he's realizing that without an Earth 2, that there is no Lois that the love of his life, his wife, and his best friend no longer exists. And that's got to be just a huge smack to the face, frankly. And I find it very, very sad. And I really feel for him. So we get the bit on Brainiac's ship with all of these various characters, most of which I've, I don't want to say I've never heard of, but I'm not really all that familiar with. I know who Adam Strange is. I know who Rip Hunter is. I know who Animal Man is, and I kind of know who Dolphin is. I've heard the names Captain Comet and the Atomic Knight, but I don't know that I've ever read any stories with them in them. And I'm not really 100% certain what the purpose behind this scene is. You know, this group being together, first of all, which is kind of weird. The Captain Comet, Adam Strange, Atomic Knight for some reason, makes a lot of sense and makes some sense that they might be with a Rip Hunter. 
but the fact that Animal Man and Dolphin are there with them as well, I don't know. I don't remember that coming out of the previous issue. I know that Rip Hunter was there with his time sphere and that they were all there, obviously, or at least, actually, I don't know if they were all there because not every one of them remembers that there were other Earths. So that's kind of interesting. I'm just curious as to how this group got together on his time, his time sphere, because I don't, I don't remember that being part of the previous issue. So I feel that that has to be something that's happening in one of the tie-in books. But again, without editor's notes, I, I can't be sure. And I'm fairly certain that some of these other digital issues had editor's notes, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm remembering incorrectly. We then have the big gathering of all the heroes from all six of the Earths that were there in the previous issue during the big battle. They've all come together to try to figure out what's going on. Helena Wayne, the Huntress, and uh, Dick Grayson, the Robin, both of them from Earth 2, are kind of going through the same thing that Earth 2 Superman is going through. We have a moment where... uh, it. I find it very funny that during this scene, we have two panels with Lady Quark and Pariah just standing together. She's actually talking to him at one point. And uh, I guess that's their way of saying that, you know, she's obviously forgiven him. She she no longer blames him for the destruction of her universe. And we did get that in the previous issue, but it's like they're really kind of, you know, not only does she no longer blame him. They're the best of friends now. That's that's kind of how that looks to me. So a lot of this stuff here in the middle is just, we are learning right alongside these heroes kind of what happened and what the new, I guess, status quo is. There's no more multiverse. There's now just the one universe. Certain things are the same. Certain things are different. Certain heroes Their histories have been melded into the history of this Earth, such as Uncle Sam and his freedom fighters, rather than being on their own Earth, where World War II is still continuing. On this new Earth, it's more like ours, where World War II is is, is over, is won by the Allies, and in this case, Uncle Sam and his freedom fighters were part of that. And so this is, again, this is just kind of us them getting us as the reader used to uh, what this new earth is going to be about, giving us some some very brief, basic information. I don't think it answers everybody's questions, but I think it gives everybody enough that we're all on the same page as readers. You know, all right, so there's no more multiverse. Most of these heroes were part of, or at least their histories have been kind of rebooted in the, total consciousness, I guess, of the universe. And yet, despite that, all of these heroes know that they come from other Earths only because they were there at the moment of rebirth. Those who were not, as far as they're concerned, this is how the Earth has always been. There's never been a multiverse. They don't know anything else about that. We learn that the Spectre is in some kind of catatonic state following his battle with the anti-monitor and uh dead man is very very interested in getting the specter to wake up because we're starting to see shadow demons now again like we did in the first couple issues 
and the crazy weather is still going on, which we saw in the first number of issues. So I think folks like Dead Man and the Phantom Stranger know that that it's it's not quite over yet. We have a scene in Las Vegas at a detectives convention, which I found really kind of out of place. But again, it's probably because this is something that's going on in some other issue, tie-in issue or, or you know, some other series at the time. And I'm just not sure why they're including it here. I don't know what the purpose behind that is. I don't know if that is in any way going to tie in to what's going to happen in the next issue. I, I really have no idea. Same thing with the whole Amethyst storyline or, or scene that we have in here with Dr. Fate and the demon coming to the aid of Amethyst. I don't know if these are rather than tell these stories in their own titles. This is our, our crossover kind of giving us a peek into some of the new storylines that are going to come out of the crisis. That may be what is happening here because with the detectives, we have the angler who has been found dead. And so that's apparently a mystery that needs to be solved. And then we have Amethyst, who has become blind. Dr. Fate looks into her eyes, sees something remarkable that we don't know. We don't know what he sees. And then he takes her home. So uh, again, I'm assuming this is something that they're giving us a bit of a story that will spin off into its own title post-crisis. I think, I, I guess, I guess that's what's going on here. There's a bit in Gorilla City, which I really kind of enjoyed. We, we get uh, a bit of a revisit with... King Solivar, who we haven't seen since issue number three of the crisis. And it's just showing us that he is, uh, looks like he's in the hospital because of his injury, which he got in a crisis number three. And they do have an editor's note for that, but we have shadow demons attacking gorilla city. And, uh, we have both Sam Simeon and uh, detective chimp there in gorilla city. I don't know if that's I'm not really 100% sure who Sam Simeon is. I, I only know Detective Chimp from around the time of Infinite Crisis when I was I was reading a lot of DC during that time. And uh, Detective Chimp was a big part of the DC universe during that time. But I don't know if he is a regular of Gorilla City, nor whoever Sam Simeon is. And because of that, as a uh, as a person who is unfamiliar... There's a part of me that feels like, okay, so are they just putting all their ape characters together in one place? I don't know. We don't see Grodd. And of course, the ultra humanite, I don't believe, has become, well, no, I believe he became the, uh, the white gorilla. He went from uh, the movie actress. His brain was taken from the movie actress into, into the white gorilla at some point in the Silver Age. We get a moment here with Cave Carson and his crew and the, the big, like, energy whirlpool thing underground in the, uh, you know, under, under Peru. Not sure what that's about, but it seems to be exploding out. Uh, this may be what is the precursor to the, the new earth being pulled into the antimatter universe. Maybe that's what that's supposed to represent here. That's why we're seeing the crazy weather again and the shadow demons. It's all a, uh, a precursor, you know, uh, uh, foreshadowing that the earth is going to be taken away. At least it's a foreshadowing that the anti-monitor is, is still around. And we get some of that again with uh, Pariah, who he's getting that tug 
that normally takes him away to witness the destruction of a of one of the many universes, but it's it's not taking him away because there are no other universes to take him to. And again, Lady Quark is right there by his side because they're the best of friends now. And then, of course, we have Alexander Luther, the antimatter effect. You know, when, when we first were introduced to him early on in the series, he was kind of composed of both positive and antimatter, but then that went away, but now it's coming back. And so as a reader, we're like, oh, goodness, what's going on? Anti-monitor stuff. This, this, we're going to see some, some antimatter universe. And we're not really left to speculate too long because, boom, suddenly the Earth is sucked into the antimatter universe. And we see this almost like a, a giant hologram of the anti-monitor's face. And he's saying, welcome to my universe. Welcome to your doom. And then we get next, at long last, the issue you've been waiting for, our double-sized conclusion, the final crisis. And that kind of uh, surprised me as well. I totally forgot that the final issue of Crisis on Infinite Earths was called the final crisis. Um, I am, of course, familiar with that term because of the final crisis event, which I was not a big fan of. And frankly, if if I can keep going with this whole event or else thing. Eventually, we will get to the final crisis. But that's issue number 11. Very strange how this has to be at least my third time through this issue, and yet it all felt brand new to me. Kind of like any penultimate chapter, there's not a whole lot going on, but I really like how they kind of use this issue to introduce us to the new status quo only to almost kind of flush it down the drain at the same time. It's like, all right, the battle's over. Here's what has come out of it. The multiverse is gone. It's just one universe. All the heroes are together. Some are not happy about it. But this is the world as we know it now. Here's a few pages for you to get used to that, because then we're going to yank it out of your hands and throw the earth into the antimatter universe. I, I really enjoyed that. So it's very obvious that the threat of the anti-monitor is not over and we're going to get like 48 freaking pages in the next issue, which I haven't read yet. I mean, I have, I read it twice before back in the day. I've, I've mentioned that numerous times, but just like this issue was brand new to me, I don't remember anything from issue number 12. So I'm, I'm pretty super pumped to get to that. And I hope you are too, because that's what we're going to do next week. The final chapter of Crisis on Infinite Earths, issue number 12, Final Crisis. And again, it's a double issue, so I have to imagine that next week's episode is going to be like 16 hours long or something like that. And uh, you're not going to want to miss that one, folks. You're just not going to want to miss it. So come back. We're going to wrap up the crisis in the next episode. And then I have plans for a further episode after it to... Bring somebody onto the show who I consider kind of a Crisis on Infinite Earths expert. And uh, I'm going to ask him a bunch of questions. And I think that should be a lot of fun. Don't you? I don't know why you wouldn't. Anyway, see you next week. Event or Else is a presentation of the Just Another Fanboy podcast. Questions and comments can be directed to eventorelse at gmail.com. You can support the show for as little as a dollar a month over at the Patreon, 
by going to patreon.com slash Stephen R. Orr. And in return, I'm going to do my very best to get you and your fellow patrons episodes just like this one before anybody else. I also encourage you to rate the show wherever available and share this podcast with a friend. All links will be in the show notes. There's a snort. Uh, that may go at the end of the sentence. It better. No, no, no. Stop. Get down.